Well, good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night teaching. Hey, uh, first thing I want to do, uh, Timberline family, we know the routine, and this is something that, that we believe in and, and we engage in because this is, uh, this is this whole idea of kingdom work that, that we understand. If you're a guest, we don't ask you to give, but Timberline family, thank you for giving uh, sacrificially. So I'll ask our ushers to come forward and go ahead and um, pass our uh, plates for normal tithes and offering. Um, I know many of you have come prepared to give for that. Um, hey, tonight we have kind of a different format than, than what we normally do. And, and this is fun. I've really been looking forward to tonight. Um, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jim Lindsay, uh, is with us tonight. We talked about this last week. And what, what, what we want to do is look at something that is a big part of our, not just our lives here, but of our, of our place in the world, and um, kind of look at this whole idea of Christian persecution specifically in the Middle East and some of those dynamics there. Uh, Jim Lindsay is a professor of uh, Middle Eastern Studies at Colorado State University. Um, he, he writes, a lot of his academic research is primarily in uh, Islamic thought, Islamic studies, specifically within the Middle Ages. Uh, writes on things like the Crusader period, uh, history of jihad, um, ancient Israel, and uh, maybe maybe more interestingly than that, um, he loves like uh, mystery novels, and he's a Star Trek geek. So some of you will probably resonate with that. Um, more importantly, uh, he's a he's a father of three three great kids, and he's a he's a great dad. And um, more importantly than that, he is a passionate follower. And, and lover of Jesus, and um, he's my friend. So, Jim, would you come up? And let me, as he's coming, let me make one quick kind of uh, announcement as to our format here this evening. Um, what I asked Jim to do is just talk to us a little bit of, you know, from a perspective of knowing both the history of how we got to where we are in the Middle East, what's going on, how do we understand all the, all the dynamics of it, um, Give us some information, and then what I'd like us to be doing is, as you have, like, thoughts, questions, write it down, and then we want to take, like, our last 15, 20 minutes, and we have a microphone up here and one over here, and this is kind of a fun setting. We're, this is a family, um, and so we just want to be able to engage and kind of ask, ask the professor. So as you have questions, um, come forward afterwards, and remember, questions usually end, like, they kind of go up. You know what I mean? They have a question mark. It's, it's not so much a statement. They're a little different and that sort of thing. So um, try to keep your questions concise. Write it down. And let's, let's kind of sit at the feet uh, like, like people have done throughout time and learn from the teacher. So thank you, Jim, for being here. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you very much. Um, I will try to keep my comments very brief. I have two things working against me. One, I'm a college professor. And secondly, I'm a preacher's kid, so it's in my DNA to be a little bit voluble. Um, are we supposed to have these slides working, folks? There we go. All right. On the handout that was given to you when you came in, there was a, a few scripture verses, and I will, I'm going to post two of them on the screen. I would encourage you to read the other ones. Uh, when you get a chance at home, that have to deal with persecution and suffering in the cause of Christ. The two songs that we opened with today are perfect for the subject that I'm, I want to address tonight, speaking about the love that God has for us and the love that we have for him. 
I didn't put on your list, but the subject matter is reminiscent, or it makes me think of what we find in the ch sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, where we have the seven seals of the apocalypse. And it says here in verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cry out, cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Given the state of affairs in the modern Middle East, you can understand, I can understand why people would utter that cry as well. Because in the Middle East, in throughout most of the Islamic world, it is the worst place to be a Christian. You are threatened with murder, you are threatened with abuse, you have the possibility of your daughters, 10, 11, 12 years of age, being kidnapped and forcibly converted to Islam and married it off to some 50-year-old man, never to be seen from again. So it is not a good time. To be a Christian in the world is uh, the most persecuted group. This is something that we in the United States do not have to worry about thank God. But we are unique. And when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, he asked this rhetorical question because the obvious answer is no one. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on and lists all of these things that cannot do it, that will not do it. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting the book of Psalms there. In Matthew, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter says, well, some say you are um, various folks, you know, Elijah, prophets, whatever. And he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? He says that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is a hope that Christians have held on to for the last 2,000 years. If you're living in Cairo or Damascus or Maalula in Syria or in Iraq or Nigeria or Pakistan, you may wonder if the gates of Hades are actually prevailing against the church because your situation is quite precarious. We can hold on to this in a big cosmic sense that at the end of times, it will still stand. In the apocalypse, when the seventh seal is opened and um, people are asking for that judgment, it will happen. That's not where we are today. I just want to give you some data. And I want to, as I said, I'll try to keep my comments short and then I'll let you to ask whatever questions you would like and I can... Uh, fill in the blanks as we go along. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is uh, housed within the U.S. State Department, and its website is on your handout, issues a report every year on the issues of religious freedom. This year's report that was issued in the spring, it named 15 countries, which it categorized as countries of particular concern. It's a euphemistic way of saying it's really, really bad there. 
10 of these countries that are of the 15 that are in that really, really bad category are Muslim majority countries. Interestingly, Afghanistan was left off the list. Okay, it's in the, it's in the second category, which is just bad. Okay? How do we get here? I like to point this out to my students at CSU, and I, I do it at, whenever Brent lets me teach a class here at uh, Timberline as well. We as Christians in Colorado, in a Protestant church, we are heirs to the Western European church. In most of church history, or the, let me rephrase that, in the beginnings of church history, Western Europe was not part of it. I circled here on the map the five ancient patriarchates of Christianity, the places where the leaders of the church were based, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, where Christians were first called Christians, where Peter was the first bishop, Alexandria in Egypt, Rome, and then lastly, Constantinople. The blue areas on the screen are the areas where Christianity spread in the first half a millennia or more of Christian history. In the seventh century, there are two major world empires in the Mediterranean world in the Middle East. We have Rome in the west and we have the Sasanian Empire in the east. Christians are living in all of these. And you can see that by the time we get to the 7th century, all five of the ancient patriarchates are under Roman rule. In the late 300s, in the 380s, Rome adopted Christianity as the official religion of the state, something that we don't have. We don't have an established religion. All of those patriarchates were under the authority of the state, under the protection of the state. The state enforced right doctrine, right belief, right behavior. People who did not want to follow right doctrine were persecuted by the state. You could coerce people into being good Christians, at least in their public behavior, maybe not in their private beliefs. In the seventh century, something happened. We have what are known as the Islamic conquests, and three of those ancient patriarchates are no longer under Christian political domination. And you'll notice that they are Egypt, modern-day Egypt, Israel, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, the core territories of the Middle East. Today, the overwhelming majority of that region is Muslim. It took about four or five hundred years for that demographic change to take place. All of those colored areas on the screen, except for the purple area at the top, were under Muslim political domination by the time we get to the mid-700s. I'm a history professor. I can't help giving you the history lesson. Why is this important? For the development of Christianity, the Christ half of the Christians in the world are now living under a political authority that is hostile to Christianity. This is a dramatic change. The church no longer has the support of the state, of the powers that be in this world. In the 1400s, the Muslim armies have, by that time, they have conquered up into southeastern Europe and Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire, falls in 1453. 
So we have one of the ancient patriarchs that is left, and that is the, the bishop in Rome. And most Western Christians, certainly most Christians in the United States, are heirs of the church in Rome, whether you're Roman Catholic or you're Protestant. The Protestant Reformation is a reformation of the Roman church. So our expectations of what is normal, of what is Christian, of what is Orthodox, comes from the West. After the mid-1400s, even more of historic Christian territory is under Islamic political domination. And the core territories of what used to be the, the base of operations, the, the homeland of our Christian ancestors, they are no longer living in a Christian environment. On this map, all these colored areas represent where there are significant Muslim populations. And in, as you can see, these light blue areas are the, the areas that I'm talking about today. 85 to 100% of the population is Muslim. The point of my talk is not to say that Muslims are bad or Muslims are good. I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm talking about your boss, your coworker, or, or your experience as a foreign aid worker or any of that. That's not my point tonight. My point tonight is to talk about your, our Christian brothers and sisters who are living in the Middle East. I will begin with Egypt. I'll make a few comments about Syria and a few comments about Iraq. When I get to 720, if I haven't made it that far, I will stop and I will let you ask me questions, okay? I would like to start with Egypt because Egypt has been in the news a great deal in the last few years. On this map, you can see the sort of the wonderful green area. That's where the Nile River is and that's where the people live. Egypt is a big country. You can't live most places because it's the desert. In those darker areas, that's where the Christian population is located today. In the 300s, the 400s, the 600s, 700s, 800s, the majority of the population was Christian. And Egypt became Christian very early on. And it's unique in that, unlike what we see in Syria, or modern-day Israel and greater Syria, the early Egyptian Christians were not first and foremost Jews. They are Egyptians who embraced Christianity. And Egypt's, Egyptian Christians have a very strong sense of who they are as ancient Christians and as an early church. And Egypt is very special in the Bible, especially for Egyptian Christians. As you can see on the screen, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus all resided in Egypt at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. We are told that. That's just part of the Christmas story. It's no big deal for us. You know, we have our little nativity scenes. If you're an Egyptian, Egypt is special. The Holy Family was here. We were blessed with the presence of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Chapter 19 of the book of Isaiah is a prophecy about Egypt. Not surprisingly, the Egyptian church embraces that as talking about itself. And you have, here's this verse from chapter 19, verse 1. See, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The Egyptian Christians interpreted that swift cloud to be a metaphor for the Virgin Mary. That she has come to Egypt to protect and to bless and to provide for Egypt and the people of Egypt 
as God's special people. We know in the prophet Hosea, and in, in Matthew's gospel, cites this, where he says that out of Egypt I called my son. When Hosea is speaking about that, he's speaking about his son Israel, who was delivered from Egypt, from the bondage in Egypt. When Matthew reinterprets that verse to refer to Jesus as God's son. Later on in chapter 19, it says, Blessed but excuse me, blessed be Egypt, my people. And for the cops, this is speaking directly about them. They are God's special people. They are like the people of Israel. Elsewhere in chapter 19, it says, So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. They're talking about Jesus. And in the Egyptian traditions, after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus and Mary came back to Egypt, where the story started. And he performed a mass there. He celebrated mass there. At the site where Joseph and Mary and Jesus had resided 33 years earlier. Now these are legends. These are stories. Did they actually happen? We don't know. But if you are an Egyptian Christian, you're not going to ever be convinced that they did not happen. This is part of who you are as a people and part of who you are as a Christian. This monastery here is the Monastery of the Virgin Mary in central Egypt. And it is the site, supposedly, where the Holy Family lived and where uh, Jesus celebrated his first Mass after his resurrection. In the recent troubles in the last year, it was under attack, and the story goes that for the first time in more than a thousand years, the daily liturgy of prayers were suspended for the first time, and that this has been a place of devotion and prayer and contemplation for the Egyptian Christians for many, many centuries. In Alexandria, this is, these are the, the, the bones, the relics of St. Mark the Evangelist, the author of the second gospel, who brought Christianity to Egypt. And every Egyptian Christian knows this story. They're going to go to this church in Alexandria. They're going to perform their prayers there. Here's an icon of Mark writing his gospel there. And here are the relics of St. Mark there. And according to tradition, he was martyred there in the year 600, excuse me, in the year 68. In Egypt today, it is a mess. There is a very common phrase in the Islamic Middle East, which refers, and the saying goes, I put it up here, first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. First, you get rid of the Jews, then you get rid of the Christians. In the 50s and 60s and early 70s, almost all of the Jews in the Middle East left their ancient homelands, whether it's in Egypt or Syria or Iraq, and moved either to Israel, the United States, South America, Canada, somewhere in the West. There are almost no Jews left. About 850,000 of them left in the 50s and the 60s in the wake of the establishment of the state of Israel. 
the religious minority that is left to be caught in the crossfire when there is political discontent are the Christians. Since the so-called Arab Spring in 2011, uh, murders, rapes, church burnings, etc., in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, elsewhere, have increased exponentially. There's a famous incident that happened in October of 2011 where 24 people are killed, more than 300 are wounded, the Egyptian police are there, the, the, the rioters come, the Muslim rioters are coming to attack the Christians and to burn down their church, and as the stories go, the Egyptian police join in with the rioters and participate in the attacks and the pogroms. Hundreds of thousands of Egyptians have left the country since January of 2011. On the news here, the Arab Spring is a wonderful, glorious thing. This is the Facebook revolution. These are young people in the streets wanting freedom. Maybe, but you what you have in Egypt, which is what you also have in Syria, which you have in Iraq and elsewhere, is a movement which is known as the Muslim Brotherhood, which views its role of establishing a just society according to God's law, which requires that Islam must dominate and all others must be subordinated. And if you do not accept your inferior subordinate position, we will persuade you by violence or coercion or whatever. In Syria, which was in the news very recently, we almost went to war there a month ago. Uh, here we have Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey, but down here in Damascus and in and around Damascus, this is where you have significant Christian populations who are on the receiving end of the free Syrian army, of the rebels against Bashar al-Assad, the rebels that our politicians want to support because Bashar al-Assad is bad. The rebels are the ones who are in league or are members of or advocates of the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood and one of their tactics is to slaughter the Christian villagers. So in the geostrategic international politics, it may make sense to do X, Y, or Z. There are always loads of unintended consequences. For the Christians of the Middle East, they are the ones who almost always are going to be the ones who get caught in the meat grinder. On this map here, you can see the demographics of Syria. It is a multi-ethnic and a multi-religious state. It is not a unified uh, culture there. About 11, 10 or 11 percent of the population is Christian, and they are the ones who get caught in the middle. This little town here, Ma'alula, is, you may have seen an article in the paper in the last month or so. It made, its, made itself into the paper, in part because it's uh, on the United Nations historic sites, because it's an ancient town where the residents still speak a dialect of Aramaic. And in the newspaper it says they still speak the language of Jesus, which is not quite the same. We speak English, but it's not quite the language of Chaucer, okay? But it's related. Okay, but it, 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 it much, it's a much better story if they're still speaking the language of Jesus. The town was surrounded. The, the Muslim brothers uh, held it. 
Some people were abused. The Syrian army liberated it. So if you're a Christian in Syria, you do not want the United States to overthrow the current regime because you know your days are over. Okay, so again, there's the geostrategic questions that politicians have to deal with, and then there's the on-the-ground facts that individuals have to deal with. The next place I would just want to make a few comments about is Iraq. We are all familiar with this. Some of you have probably served there or served in Afghanistan. Since 2003, I, I should change the number there, it's well over 1,000 Christians have been killed simply for being Christian. Close to 100 churches have been firebombed and exploded, and here's a couple of images there. Um, from this one attack at Our Lady of Salvation Catholic Church in Baghdad. About a half of the Christian population of Iraq has left the country since 2003. You have a similar kind of dynamic in Iraq that we see taking place in Syria. With the removal of Saddam, which is a good thing, and I'm not arguing that he should not have been removed, but you take off, you take away the strong man who maintains order, and now there is no order, and all kinds of old grievances can be uh, resolved. Um, and so you have Sunni-Shiite conflict, and both of them are going to turn their attention on their Christian Iraqi fellow citizens, because they're easy targets. Uh, just last, it was about two weeks ago, I was reading an article about a church in Syria. A priest has gone, gone into the confessional booth to hear confession of one of his congregants, and there's a bomb in the confessional booth. Now, I don't think that would be a good place for a bomb to be, but you can see how uh, the animosities are there. Um, as I put up here on the screen, about two-thirds, half to two-thirds of the Iraq's population have left. Not all of them have been able to flee to Western countries where they have found safety. Many of them fled due west, which lo and behold puts them in Syria. <laughs> so they get to go from one meat grinder to another. This is the situation in which our Christian and brothers are living throughout the Middle East, but the same situation obtains whether they're in northern Nigeria or in Pakistan or in Sudan or in Somalia or any of these places in which the majority of the population is Muslim. A lot of that has to do with simply the fact that we as Americans, we, what we expect as normal of how a society is supposed to be ordered, how a state is supposed to be ordered, what is normal things that we take for granted, our first freedom is religious freedom, right? Our first amendment says Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Any traditional Islamic form of government cannot agree with that because their job is to enforce right religion. They behave much like, say, King Josiah did or King Hezekiah did, or Emperor Theodosius. He was put, they're put there by God to enforce right religion, not to give freedom of religion to people. 
So it's the Christian populations in these areas that today are the ones who are uh, on the receiving end of an awful lot of bloodshed and an awful lot of abuse. I told you at the outset that I have two strikes against me, and it's 724, not 720, so I'm going to stop. And if you have any questions about what I've just said, I've given you an, a very brief sketch. Uh, I'd be happy to answer them. If you don't have any questions, I can fill the time. <laughs> I saw Pastor Foth give a knowing laugh because he, su he suffers from the same dilemma that I have. No questions? Yeah, come up here and use the microphone, please. So it's supposed Sir. to end with a raise. Raise that. Okay, pitch goes up. Okay, just checking. Jim, thank you very much. You're, you're um, welcome. So is this the beginning? I mean, it, the Christianity, I mean, are we at the beginning of the apocalypse now and that what we're seeing the only way that this is ever going to change is going to be through the second coming of Christ? Or do you see that another 400, 500 years and all of a sudden it's a cyclical kind of a deal to where Christianity might gain in popularity again through the strong few? Or uh, I realize that's an opinion, but mm -hmm. how do you see that as far as the book of Revelation and end times and with what's going on there now? Um, and thanks again. You're welcome. I, I, I do not know the future, but I know who holds it. <laughs> okay, that, that's my uh, semi-cop-out answer, but it is, I am dead serious on that. I do not know what holds the future, but the future is very grim. Um, there was an ancient Jewish population in Iraq that dated back to the time of the Babylonian conquest and the Persian Empire and Darius and the, the memory of the time in Iraq and Iran is remembered fondly in the Jewish tradition. I mean, Darius, for crying out loud, is called God's Messiah in the book of Isaiah. There are almost no Jews left in that part of the world uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, so I'm, I'm not optimistic. I don't know if things can change. or certainly can't change under human um, conditions. And it would take, I, I think it would take a, a miracle but what's, what's, what we do need to bear in mind is that the Christians in Egypt, the Christians in Syria, the Christians in Iraq do not want to leave. You know, from their point of view, we were here before the Muslims came, particularly in Syria and in Egypt. That's, I, that's why I gave you the, those passages from Isaiah that Egyptians hold on to to um, show that, you know, this is, this is, we are the ones who are the true Egyptians. I mean, they're called cops, which is derived from the Greek word for Egypt, you know, that it just means that they're the Egyptians. So I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm giving you a satisfactory answer. I, I was wondering if I should read anything from the book of Revelation, because I don't know what to do with that one, but I liked the rhetoric of that passage. So I'm, somebody else, yes, sir. Oh, Mr. Tucker. <laughs> I broke the microphone. Um, Watching what's happening in Egypt and, and uh, the backlash against Morsi by mm -hmm. more, m I guess, moderate or uh, people that don't want, you know, necessarily the strictness of mm -hmm. the Muslim Brotherhood type government. Um, also been hearing echoes of that in Tunisia, mm -hmm. Libya, you know, seems like there's the, 
the radicals that move in, the Al-Qaeda and the, the Brotherhood, you know, mm -hmm. taking over. And then when, you know, they do get the power, then there's this backlash, like we're seeing in Egypt, they throw Morsi mm -hmm. out, you know. Do you see any trends like that happening in the other countries? How do you think that's all going to wash out between people who realize, hey, these guys are getting into power and taking over, and that's not really what we want? Um, I don't know if that's not what people want. Uh, the, whenever there is a free and fair election in this part of the world, the Muslim Brotherhood types win. Uh, we see this in Gaza. We saw it in Egypt. Um, you never quite know uh, how things are working in Iran, but they do have elections. But they cannot govern. But nobody can govern in this part of the world. Uh, doesn't matter who's in charge in Egypt, it's going to be a disaster. There are... You know, 70% of the caloric intake of Egypt is imported. It cannot feed itself. Its economy is an utter and total disaster. So when you're promising the, you know, you vote, you know, the, the slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood is that Islam is the solution. A parallel to that is a, a slogan that was very common when I was in high school in the 1970s, and some of you are old enough to remember the 1970s, and that was, Jesus is the answer, which is a very nice slogan. But what Jesus are you talking about, and what is the question? Okay, so I mean, it's a very malleable phrase that can be filled with anything, but it's a very powerful one to people who want that to be um, how the world is ordered. I think that the Muslim Brotherhood ideology is not going anywhere. I think it is, has a very broad following, but when the, the Muslim Brothers do get in charge, they do not have a positive plan for how to you know, make the trains run on time, how to make the economy function, etc. And the, the economic straits are so bad in this part of the world that I'm not sure that anything can work. I think that there are two options, a strong military option, uh, which is a repressive state, or a strong Islamist option, which is also a repressive state. Uh, just to give one example of the former model, in the uh, 70s, there was a president in Egypt who was named Anwar Sadat. And he's a great hero to many Americans because he made peace with Israel. And this is a good thing. Because Israel is our ally. Israel are, you know, the Jews are the chosen people. There should be peace in the Middle East. He was a terrible, that period was a terrible period for the cops in Egypt. We don't hear about that here. Because it doesn't fit into our um, understanding of the big geostrategic issues. I also think part of it is that we, as I mentioned at the outset, we are heirs to, heirs of Rome and of Western Christianity, and given the, the loss of the patriarchates in the 7th century and then in the 15th century, Eastern Christianity is just something over there. It's something different. Maybe they're not the real thing, because they're, they're, they're different than us. And they kind of are off our radar screen. So that's one of, one of my many missions in life, is to bring them uh, more to the forefront of our imagination so that we know a little bit more, of, or at least are aware of their situation and that they are very much in need of our prayers. I don't know what else we can do besides our prayers because I'm not in charge of a state. And 
I think the rest of the world would thank, whether they're believers in God or not, they are thanking him that I am not in that position. Uh, but I think that's, that's what we definitely do need to pray for them. Sir. Can you talk a little bit about uh, economic persecution? So jobs that Christians do and how, the, how they would be persecuted in an economic way. Uh, that's a really good question. It depends, it, it depends from place to place. Um, in Egypt, and in, in a number of these places, the, and this dates back to the, 19, the changes of the 19th century and the role of the, uh, particularly the British and the French in their colonial period in the Mediterranean world, the religious minorities essentially are given a position of um, kind of like diplomatic immunity that we might have. They're under the protection of the British or the French, and they are more westernized, whether it's one of the Christian sects or the Jews. And so they, they've learned, and there's a longer tradition of, their, of an educational system that is westernized, and they're integrated by family connections and trade connections, economically with the West outside of that. And so as a, as a result of that, there are a number of families uh, in all of these areas who, were, who came to be fairly well-to-do in an economic sense. Not in a political power sense, but there are you know, well-to-do middle class, upper middle class, uh, some even further up the economic uh, ladder. But when the, when the push comes to shove, the choice between hiring the Christian or hiring the Muslim, the Christian is always in a subordinate position uh, unless he's being hired by a family member or somebody from his tribe or, or that kind of thing. Um, but the economic, I don't, I don't know if economic persecution is an incredibly helpful category because the economic situation is so dire for so many uh, groups along the whole political and economic uh, sector. But the people are um, discriminated against simply because they belong to the wrong religion. Uh, and belonging to the wrong religion is kind of the worst thing to belong to. Um, Celeste. Um, you've kind of answered some of it, but I guess it's thinking different ways or sources of help for the Christians there. Is there any well, several, is there any hope our government will make any decisions um, that would be a benefit to the Christians or how do we encourage our government? Because like, who, there's, who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, and who do you support? And um, Support where, just, here or there? Well, for our government to be giving all the, the money to, you know, for supporting militarily or financially, yeah. you know, which groups. And also, what about agents or organizations like Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors or there are other ways, practical ways, or groups that are successful there that we can support or other things that we can do to help them? Okay, yeah, a couple of questions there, I think. Um, I think the, I mean, states behave in their own interests, and whoever is the president of the United States gets to define what the interests of the United States are. That's how our system works. In my opinion, the the current administration's sympathies tend to be with the Muslim Brotherhood movement. I mean, it was in Libya, it was in Tunisia, it was in Egypt. Um, 
Why that is the case, I don't understand. Um, but it's not only the current you know, executive branch. We find that in the, in the Senate. You know, Senator McCain, Senator Graham, uh, several of the other senators are advocating intervening in Syria on behalf of the rebels. To my mind, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, we, we intervened in Libya, in eastern Libya, in the region of Benghazi, on behalf of the opponents of Gaddafi, and that region of Libya, second only to Saudi Arabia, our other close ally in the region, was on a per capita basis the number two um, reservoir of, of foreign jihadis who are moving to Iraq to fight against the Americans while we are there. So uh, politics does make strange bedfellows. I'm not an advocate of giving financial and military aid to regimes who either are engaged in or who are um, turning a blind eye to the murder of Christians. You know, th this is my opinion. I, I, do not I don't get to make that decision. As far as the organizations, I gave a list of some uh, groups that, are, that will give you information. I endorse none of them. Um, I've, I'm not quite as old as some people in here, but I'm older than others. And I'm a little bit suspicious of um, the international charity racket. I'm happy to give generously to people in need. I'm not that interested in giving to the CEO of a charity organization. Um, who's pulling down six, seven figures. And I don't know the financial status of those organizations, so I do not endorse them. I do not encourage you to send anybody any money. Um, but uh, they do. you can read their websites and learn an awful lot of information. But I, I don't know how they run their finances, so I, can't, I would never ask you to give money to that. That's, that's another... Um, benefit of being a preacher's kid and having seen many uh, abuses. Not by my father. He was the best pastor who has ever lived, but um, <laughs> second only to the good shepherd. He was, he, was just, he was a good shepherd, not the really good shepherd. Okay. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> yeah, my name is Doug Clark. Um, Hi, Zach. Dr. Philip Jenkins at uh, Penn State University suggests that our view of these kinds of situations that you've described is is far too constricted and in his book the lost history of christianity he talks about the nestorian christians mm -hmm. uh, going into china actually taking christianity there before christianity arrived in ireland and um, mm -hmm. he points out that there were at least two major occasions when the entire Chinese church was wiped out to the ground uh, by persecution, and that it wasn't until the 1900s that Christianity took root in China and uh, really became an indigenous religion. Now, I, I raise that, that scenario to question, or at least maybe to broaden, hopefully broaden the perspective that you shared with us this evening, first, first of all, my impression of the traditional churches of the Middle East is that they have had 1,400 years to share the Christian faith with the growing Muslim community around them, 
And although you can point to individuals here and there who had a witness, by and large, that community, that Christian, those Christian communities that you described, have taken a, let's pull the wagons into a circle and defend ourselves against the onslaught of these okay. barbarians all around us. I, I don't mean to cut you off. Could you, did you have a question? I do. Okay. I do could, have, you, could you ask the I question? I do have a question. Okay. There is another church in the Middle East, and that's the Muslim convert church that is mm -hmm. slowly beginning to grow. And I want, my question is, is it not possible, taking Jenkins' view, that God is simply drawing down the curtain on the presence of these traditional Christian groups in the Middle East and clearing the decks, as it were, for a greater rise of the Muslim convert church that will have a viable and credible, strong witness to its own Muslim people? I don't think so. Uh, I think that's, um, in a very short answer, I think that's a, a lot of wishful thinking. Um, the reason that the majority of the population in this part of the world is Muslim is that the Christians became Muslims. And Islam and Christianity are irreconcilable in a theological sense. And if you sort of do the surreptitious Muslim Christian um, under the radar Christianity that looks like Islam, it's not Orthodox Christianity in its historical sense. So I, I think that Anytime someone can be, is going to be brought to Christ, I think is a good thing. But I don't think that abandoning the traditional church and historical orthodoxy is the way to go. Um, but I, I'm slightly over my time, and what I'd like to do at this stage is to transition. Uh, one of the themes here is the shed that explicit, implicit, is the shedding of blood the shedding of the blood of the body of Christ in the Middle East. And on Wednesday nights, we do take communion together, and I'm, I'm going to be doing the transition to that. And I'd like to begin by reading from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 11. And this is what he says to the church at Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as we know, and we know very well, that Christ's sacrifice was the paschal lamb that covers the sins of us and of the world and makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. We have it very well here in the United States, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, as well as in China, as well as in plenty of other places in the world have it very, very difficult. If you are uh, comfortable, I would ask you to pray with me the following prayer together before we take communion together. Something happened to the screen, so I will just recite it to you. <laughs> okay, I will pray it. Pray with me together, please. Almighty and everlasting God, 
who in the Paschal mystery established a new covenant of reconciliation. Grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Comfort, we, we pray, all who are persecuted and reviled for the name of Christ. Remember in your kingdom those who have been killed all the day long, who have been accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Give hope to the suffering, lead the oppressor to repentance and compassion. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.